and uh, it's been a couple of days since we read this together. Hebrews chapter 10, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. And the uh, Amplified Version says, for since the law has merely a, a root or a rough outline, which is a foreshadowing of the good things to come, instead of fully expressing those things, it can never by offering the same sacrifices continually year after year make those who approach its altars perfect, or make perfect those who approach its altars. The New Living Translation is of the old system under the law of Moses. It was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. The law prescribed the sacrifices, as we know, and for 1,500 years or so before the time of Christ, they were offered for ritual cleansing as well as temporary covering of the sins. So the ritual cleansing meaning that they had to do it habitually And obviously it was not perfect because they had to continue to do that. When we talk with a person of Jewish descent, we may pose this question. As the Lord leads, where are the temple sacrifices now? If you believe in the law, you believe in the law of Moses, Why don't you sacrifice now if it's been prescribed in the law? If you don't believe in Jesus who came to fulfill the law and then to make the law obsolete, all of the rituals and the sacrifices, then why is, not, is it not being continued by the Jewish people today? The traditional answer they'll give is that because of the Roman invasion and destruction of the temple, there are no sacrifices. Because without the temple, you really can't have sacrifices. That's where it's all taken care of. On those grounds. There's no temple, therefore there are no sacrifices. 
And today, according to the rabbinic traditions, they say what's required is mitzvah or good deeds. And therefore they believe that uh, God has prescribed or allowed mitzvah to supersede their religious sacrifices. The actual word for mitzvah in the Hebrew is a commandment uh, as a religious duty. In the Jewish law they call halacha includes the rituals the commandments and the religious duties. But also they have extended that word mitzvah to mean uh, any such deed that a Jew can perform to express kindness in accordance with the law. But the rabbis who have recorded and taught many things regarding the Jewish cultural life in a work called the Talmud In their collection of writings, they have actually given many things that have to do with the Jewish thought and all they would like to achieve as Jews, spiritually. Jesus in his day told the people, the Pharisees, religious, religious leaders, you are canceling out the word that came from God with your vain traditions. He said you have many things that you're observing. These are your interpretations and you've added and you've taken away. You've, in other words, given precedence and priority to what the rabbis have taught and interpreted in their Talmudic prescriptions, whatever they, they thought. And so you had different rabbis read, leading different people. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are two such sects, S-E-C-T-S, in Judaism. You had the Zealots, you had different people, the Essenes, all of these people who, according to the book of Hebrews, they <clears throat> came from that mosaic tradition of having to offer sacrifices, but all of a sudden, after 70 AD, all of that stopped. Any sincere <clears throat> Jew open to the truth, open to the Spirit of God, he may have since 
certainly been following the Mosaic prescription for sacrifices. Once the temple has been leveled and destroyed and the city burned with fire, it ought to make one wonder as a Jew, what could God be saying about this? We know he destroyed or he allowed the destruction of the temple before by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, some 650 years later, or 750 years later, 650 years later, that is, 586 B.C. to 70 A.D., about 650 years or so later, it's destroyed again, and now we're scattered, not just to a place called Babylon, but they were scattered all over the world. And a Jew living, whether in the first century or the second century, a Jew living down the centuries, if they would but ask the Lord, what happened to the sacrificial system that we read about and we memorize and we recite and we study in the Bible, in the law, in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the prophets, the historical books. If Malachi was the last book of their Bible, the Old Testament, the last prophet and some three or four hundred years after he spoke it seemed to be a period of silence no other written revelation recorded and the oppression of Rome increased to the point of destruction of the temple. Where is God? What happened? What is he saying? The natural question that should come up. And so when we converse with Jews, perhaps we can ask them, what happened to the sacrificial system? And if one says that this mitzvah, they translate as commandment, includes the Talmudic interpretations, what the rabbis prescribed, their interpretation of the law and their extension of the law and their subtraction or deviation from the essence of the law which is not just to love your neighbor as yourself, which they like to talk about acts of human kindness but to love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does that entail? The essence of the law is not the ritual, but the relationship. God is always emphasizing that. That's why the very first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then, Jesus said the whole law comes down to loving your neighbor as you love yourself only then what we express to God as a 
obedience and sacrifice, even the good deeds, must be acceptable with God. And that's another point. Number one, where's the temple? Hence, no sacrifice. The where the sacrifices today, no temple. What could God be saying by this? What happened the first time the Lord allowed the destruction of the temple? Was he happy with his people? And the second time, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, according to what's been written before in all the Law and the Prophets, when God expressed his displeasure with his people, he says, 40 years I was grieved with this generation. God expresses exactly how he feels. There's no mystery. According to the word of God and how God feels about his people. And so the Hebrew people must understand that God has come and expressed his great displeasure in his people, and that's why he allowed his temple to be destroyed, just like in 586 B.C. And although the temple was rebuilt within decades following the destruction of the first temple, the second destruction has not seen the rebuilding of any temple in Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David, for 2,000 years. What could God be saying? And these mitzvah, could they ever replace the sacrifices that God instituted? If indeed the Lord says, the blood is what I've given you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls or your sins. Did God ever change that? Can any rabbinic interpretation of the law and the requirements of God ever be equated with or replace with God's approval his own ordained sacrificial system that was practiced for 15 centuries from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. No temple, no sacrifices. Where are the priests today? The people we see, the Jews who are called or their last names of Kohen and different names, they are supposedly descended from the priesthood, the priestly class of people in their genealogy. But where are the priests? You have a political structure in Israel. You still have religious life. But it seems even throughout the world you have rabbis, these teachers of the law whom the Jewish community looks up to. They have synagogues. But no sacrifice. 
The question is posed, where did God ever command the good deeds that the rabbis require to replace the blood of animals that could make an atonement for their souls. Leviticus 17.11, as we often quote. If we approach a Jew and ask these questions, could God have been speaking loud and clear when he allowed the destruction of his temple? Could God have been angry with his people? And where's the remedy? Around the same time the temple was destroyed, just prior, some four decades, within four decades, there was a Jewish man named Jesus, and he came and said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And uh, the Jewish people said, how can this man rebuild a temple that was 46 years in the making? This expansion by Herod of the temple. And it's written in the scriptures, but he spoke about his body. That if he's crucified, if he's put to death, in three days he'll rise. Who is this man that made such claims? And if he preached love, could he have been someone who is way off the mark from the essence of the law, essence of Judaism? And furthermore, if he practiced love and he healed people, was there any rabbi equal to him? And finally, if he said that God so loved the world that he sent me to give my life as the Lamb of God to make an atonement for the whole world, not just the, just the Jews. And so, as believers... These are some of the approaches that we can uh, use from the scriptures to help those who may be like how these Hebrew Christians to whom the epistle of Hebrews was written to before they got saved. And as Paul, Paul reasoned with the people in the synagogue, perhaps we can reason with Jews. and ask them to honestly consider what they're practicing, even according to the law, that it's unlawful to replace the sacrifices with anything, unless God did away with the sacrifices and fulfilled it in some way. The God who promised in the book of Jeremiah that he's going to bring a new covenant, new system, in the major prophets themselves in the Jewish law. 
for us as believers, we have the hope. We have the steadfast hope, the sure hope, the certainty that all that God required because there was a distance Everyone's familiar with social distancing today because of the fear of a plague of germs. Sin is such a plague. God maintains social distancing. Every human being. Unless he sanctified them and they could draw near. took the blood of Jesus to finish the work of salvation. And once the plague was dealt with, the germs were dealt with, human beings developed the immunity, the true immunity against sin, which comes by the power of the blood of Jesus to break the chains of slavery, the sins, only then was the mask removed. And we can say, by way of analogy, the mask was the veil. God cannot get any plague. He cannot get sick. But He's holy. He cannot look upon sin. It's contrary to His nature. Sickness burns up in His presence. Evil doers burn up like stubble, the Bible says in his presence, like hay. Easy to catch fire, so dry. But because he loves us, he did not create us to be destroyed, but to have life that more abundantly. He sent his son to take care of the plague. Called sin. Before that, there was a foreshadow, as we read here, with the law and the sacrifices to deal with it temporarily. Perhaps we can equate that with the vaccination that we are told must be renewed yearly. Or at least whenever a new strain of the virus comes out. Which shows that there's no perfect immunity guaranteed. But if the germs themselves are destroyed at the source for all of mankind, in one shot, if the entire globe can be vaccinated, not with man's synthetic vaccination, but some potent permanent solution, people never ever have to worry about COVID-19 or 1 through 19 or 1 through million whatever comes out never imagine that if someone could step up and say we have eradicated COVID from the planet we have eradicated leprosy polio measles asthma Eradicated cancer, eradicated the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, eradicated every disease, 
What joy and celebration there will be. Uncontainable, virtually. Joy all over the globe. No more disease. Hospitals are empty. Doctors and nurses would have to go look for another job. Perhaps many of them would do that joyfully because they themselves are immune and their families. Perhaps we get an understanding, a better understanding of the full import and impact of what Jesus did on the cross. He eradicated not the presence of sin because the world is not reclaimed by him yet, the universe yet restored, I should say, but individuals have developed a lifetime and eternal immunity to the power of the plague. So that even if its presence is that is as if it was not present, effectively. Who can guarantee such a, a great breakthrough? Jesus does. He, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came with his blood on the altar in heaven to make an atonement for our souls forever. That's why no more sacrifices are needed. Because he paid the price. But with the price that was paid, which are not repeated year after year, there's responsibility. If there's an immunity, there's a responsibility to appreciate that and not to get oneself in such a state that their immune system breaks down. Now there will be a repeat. But according to Hebrews 10, with the repeat of going back into sin over and over again and willfully surrendering to the disease called sin and to the slave master called Satan, only death can result and there will be no more remedy. Reading from verse 2, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. The fear that I'm carrying something or potential as a human being, I'm vulnerable. It doesn't matter if it's the homeless person on the street or the president or some king in some palace. Everybody has to wear a mask. And according to the experts, even those who have been immunized, or I should say vaccinated, and acquired some perceived degree of immunity, there is no guarantee that a new strain won't come and put them back in the same boat, full of water sinking. They have to run to get another vaccination. And the mutations, the deception of sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin is such that it can keep morphing into different 
strains designed to kill? Who can ever give us the expose of the actual nature of sin so we can be protected? Who can actually give us the immunity, not just the knowledge, but the power? Only the Lord Jesus. When we use analogies, often I've said this is where the analogy fails or the correlation, maybe the one-to-one correlation in an analogous example. Because we're dealing with eternal things. But it's sufficient to understand that what Jesus did was a greater work than eradicating physical disease on the planet. He came to eradicate spiritual disease once and for all. That's how potent his blood is. The blood transfusion that happens at Calvary no disclaimers and there's no fear for anyone who receives the blood of the living God going into their veins spiritually of ever having any trouble from that blood as is the case with humanity as the doctors cannot even look beyond a certain degree of all the pathogens that may be involved in the transfer and what may come down the road this blood is pure this priest that gave his blood is sinless hallelujah who can boast that which priest can ever boast sinless blood which priest would ever dare to say oh God I will give my life as a sacrifice can you just kill me when I come before you which high priest would dare to say to God when I step into the veil that's separating you from the people and you're bringing me in as a representative once a year I'm trembling but let me die right here and may my blood be splattered all over the mercy seat my God and may the people see blood flowing from the temple down to the bronze lever down to the altar of sacrifice that the priest, the high priest has died today. And if the high priest would say, may my blood serve as a payment for all of Israel, God, and that they don't have to ever rely upon animals again, their blood, who would dare do that? No one, because that priest himself has sinned. He cannot offer sinless blood. That's why it says in Romans, even if a man were good-natured, good-hearted, and righteous, could he ever? It says in the book of Proverbs, save his brother or himself. Jesus qualified. The Lord Jesus qualified in every way to become the perfect sacrifice as the perfect high priest as well. The more we read the Word of God and the more we understand how these dots connect, we see a trajectory of perfect wisdom, a logical handling of humanity's plight, their plague from the Almighty God, very systematically, but also exceedingly mercifully 
to the point where he gave his life, God gave his life for our souls. If they would or could have provided perfect cleansing, the old system, the sacrifices would have stopped. You can ask your fellow Jew, as the Lord leads, if you're praying for their salvation, whatever happened to the sacrifices? And they say, well, we don't have that. We have mitzvah. What is mitzvah? If it means commandment or good deeds, human kindness, acts of those things, who dared replace the sacrifices that were given, prescribed by God for 1,500 years with that? And could it be that the destruction of the temple and the inability of any Jewish community anywhere on the planet to go back and rebuild the temple, unlike under Cyrus, within decades of his destruction, under Cyrus's edict. Now for two millennia, there's no temple. Could God have been saying something so loud and clear that perhaps his people, his chosen people, missed it? And how coincidental could it be, perhaps, that the time around which the temple was destroyed, just a few decades before that, this rabbi was there, a young rabbi in his 30s, who they charged saying, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And he said, I am, as God said on the mount or to Moses when he said, whom shall I say sent me? when he had the encounter with the burning bush. I am. Jesus said before Abraham was, he didn't say I was, he said I am. They took stones to kill him because they knew. Who is this man that could make such claims and then say my blood is going to be shed as the Lamb of God? whom this uh, non-Christian John the Baptist, although considered strange, multitudes flocked to him. How did your Jewish law and people handle John the Baptist? When after all he was doing was turning people back to God in the spirit of Elijah. And when he saw this young rabbi, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And everything played out exactly as was prophesied. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem according to the book of Micah, your minor Old Testament prophet, chapter 5 and verse 2. According to Psalm 22, he was crucified, surrounded by Gentiles. What Jew would be surrounded by Gentiles and crucified unless he were a criminal of such a vexation to the Jewish community that they handed him over instead of dealing with him themselves? to the point that they needed to kill that man. And what charge was brought against this young rabbi, Jewish rabbi? That was not admissible by a Roman governor, Pilate, who could care less about the Jewish people and their standards. He himself said, I find no fault with this man. What's going on here? Just as Abraham found that ram caught in the thicket in place of his son Yitzhak or Isaac in Mount Moriah, 
on the region of Moriah, offer that instead of his son. Could Jesus have been the substitute to pay for our sins? If the deeds and the keeping of the law apart from the rituals of the sacrifices were sufficient. In other words, if God gave the Ten Commandments and the other moral commandments and said, if you just do these things, that is, love your neighbor, don't commit adultery, don't steal, if that were sufficient, then why the sacrifices? It was a dual requirement by God, not only to keep the moral commandments and the civil prescriptions in the law, but the ceremonial. What's the meaning of all of this? And if Jews today should observe the different Jewish feasts, if they should observe as we have the three main branches, the orthodox, the conservative, and the liberal, free form, some may call it. Among the orthodox, they have ultra-orthodox, all different interpretations, as I've mentioned before. On the holy days, one Jewish group, such as the orthodox, may believe you cannot drive to the synagogue. Some may even say you cannot climb steps. Others may say you can drive, but you can't exercise on that day or labor. Another one says you can do anything you want. You can do cartwheels to the synagogue if you want. Another one may say to carry keys in your pocket is labor. Working on the Sabbath or the holy days. One should say, well, there are many interpretations to any law. And that's why you have judges and attorneys. That's because the human mind and the human system is imperfect. But can the perfect lawgiver make a mistake? And could the attorney, the intercessor Moses, have made a mistake if he received it directly from God and he was faithful in all his house? Where did we go wrong? Where did the Jewish people go wrong? But the interesting thing here, and the important thing to note is, God didn't merely say, remember the Sabbath day uh, to keep it holy or to observe it. Honor your father and your mother. Thou should not kill. Thou should not covet thy neighbor's wife or his livestock, his property, all those things. If that were sufficient, these good deeds, human kindness, and maintaining the boundary of uh, good faith and good conscience between your neighbor and yourself. If a person is a good Jew, a good Catholic, and may I say, the Catholic religion has a pseudo-Christian form which is absolutely unbiblical because they have priests 
What are the sacrifices? And if the high priest Jesus is there and he's paid the ultimate sacrifice, what need is there of any other priests? That's why in the New Testament there are no offices for any priest, such as in the New Testament church, as exists for prophets, apostles, evangelists, teachers, and pastors, for the pastor teacher. But all believers are priests. Why? Because we can go directly to God. These inconsistencies that we see when people pick and choose what they'd like to give people a sense of uh, separation from God and the need for a system that man has contrived with the help of the devil to keep people blind in the dark. And what about the Christian, the born-again Christian, who says, I've been raised as a Christian in the Christian home and I gave my heart to Jesus at 13 years old perhaps and I have um, made my confirmation and I read my Bible every day. Many, many Christians who, if you would interview them, ask them, how do you get to heaven? They may say, well, you have to be a good person. Others may say, Jesus through Jesus. He paid it all. And yet they may rely upon their good deeds. In essence, they don't understand what Jesus did exactly and how he broke the chains of slavery and how they should be walking in the newness of life. So in response to what he did on the altar in heaven, giving his own blood as a payment, we ought to be heavenly minded and make sure that we can get there by following his holy path that he's marked up for us. So the Christian needs a sacrifice. It may seem uh, redundant to say the Christian needs a sacrifice or to understand that he needs Christ, the Passover lamb. Everyone needs Christ, the Passover lamb. Whether Jew or Gentile, if we can break up the humanity, the human face or the human race, the face of humanity, I should say, into two groups, these two subsets of the human race, Jew and Gentile, going further within the Gentile world, all non-Jews, the various religions, thousands upon thousands of religions, and then within them many, many sects in some religions. Every one of them, the Satanist needs Jesus' blood in order to be saved from the devil's dominion over their lives, grotesque and wicked. requires repentance. The Hindu needs Jesus Christ's blood. There's no other remedy for the Hindu. There's no remedy for the Satanist. There's no remedy for the Muslim. No remedy for the Buddhist. No remedy for any person of any so-called faith or religion. Only one. Jesus' blood. 
As with the Jew, so with the Gentile. Jesus' blood alone can save. It requires repentance. A faith that believes to turn away from our sins so that we can pursue the path that God brings us into by virtue of his blood. He causes us to be born again so that we can live in another world while we're in this world. Fully functioning in this world, responsible and practically beneficial to the community and to the world, but preparing for the ultimate perfection because we're on that pathway of freedom and holiness. To be with God forever. Having fulfilled His will on earth, we will continue to fulfill His will in heaven. It's a new path. A new way. A new thing. More than just a song. It's a new way of life. And the Bible says in Hebrews here, once you have embarked upon that life, to go back to the old life is uh, potentially... A fatal decision. There are people who die drunk while singing Jesus loves me this I know. Such as a famous singer that happened some years ago. What a tragedy. Even in the drunken state something haunting that individual's conscience that Jesus was the way after all. Now forced to confess that and crying for that but it's too late this morning we have heard more about our salvation which is so rich so potent through the blood of Jesus We've heard more and understood more about how the Jew is blind without the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they're following a faulty system now. A system not only that was obsolete, made obsolete by the cross, the sacrificial system, but it has missing elements. With the primary central base the temple from which all those rituals emanate and are to be performed especially the blood sacrifices on those grounds no longer exist and the logical question the rational question of any thinking Jew exposes the reality They're doing their own thing, not what God is requiring. With the law, and within the law, sacrifices always have to be there. What happened? For the believer, the one sacrifice has been made. If we accept that sacrifice, that means we're living for that person who gave the sacrifice, who made the sacrifice. And if we live independently, then we are fighting against the very grace that God has given us. Being headstrong, self-willed, independent, stubborn, rebellious, 
is equivalent, as the Lord brought to my mind last evening, to being a witch. As the Prophet Samuel said, to Saul. Stubbornness and rebellion is equivalent to witchcraft and idolatry. The very things God hates. When you tell a person come to church and they don't come, especially the pastors, that stubbornness and rebellion, God says in his word, not me, not any pastor. He said when somebody's stubborn and they don't listen to the truth, they don't obey. He said, that person is like a witch to God. He's like a person who's sacrificing to these strange gods. You know, you see them in the private rooms, in the temples, to Baal and Moloch and all detestable things. See some of these Greek so-called deities, grotesque. These female figures with grotesque mutations of the human body feeding the lust and the wickedness of the so-called worshippers. God sees his people doing grotesque things, burning incense to Satan as witches, under a spell and casting spells, when one is stubborn and idolatrous. Next time the enemy would come to entice you to do something against what God said in his word or against what the pastors teach from God's word. As is written in the very book of Hebrews, don't grieve those who God has placed over you. It won't be good for you. We're not talking about some outlandish pastor who's prescribing and practicing something foreign to the Bible, who's saying do some strange things. No. Pastor who says, come to church. Let's worship the Lord. Let's live holy. And follow me as I follow Christ. And this is what you should do. Your finances, this is what God says about it. Don't grudge against me. Look at God's word. I'm teaching what God says. Your relationships. You're supposed to apologize to the people you offend in your family. You're not bigger or better than them. You'll be held accountable. Oh, I don't like to hear this. Tell me something else. Tell me the parables of Jesus and the old, old, good old story. Stubbornness and rebellion is like witchcraft. I should say stubbornness and rebellion is like witchcraft and idolatry. If we can understand uh, these sayings that God has recorded in the Bible and to whom it was said and why, and how that person started out and what went wrong and how they continued and the calcification of the human heart and conscience continued to happen to the point where they ended up dying, consulting a witch. My God, oh, how quickly, how quickly a person can fall. God warns, but if we sit and hear sermons and we continue to do our thing as far as our Christianity and refuse to humble ourselves and say I'm sorry to the people we offend, even in the family and especially in the family. If we refuse to listen to the shepherds and modify what they say, in essence saying to God, I'll modify what you say 
if those shepherds are true, preaching the truth. If the shepherds say, by God's grace, go this way, and we determine to go the opposite way, God says, inasmuch as he told through the prophet Samuel, and Saul disobeyed Samuel, he was disobeying God. This is the problem these days. The pastor becomes Jimmy, Johnny. Or whoever. Just like me. Pastor has a job. I have a job. And uh, their job is to teach, to preach, to give communion maybe, and maybe be involved in the confirmation of my son or daughter. Yeah, Christian pastor. But if they should say, you know, you really shouldn't be drinking. Oh, who are they to lord it over my life and determine when I can drink, when I can, or how much to drink. Even if they do bring the scriptures and Proverbs and Ephesians. That's going a little too far. They're overstepping their pastoral boundaries. You know, if they keep it up, I'm going to find me another church because I think that's just too much. I think. The problem is, I think not what God says. That's what the problem is. Because there's a rebellion in the heart. Who's the pastor to say, that we should give a tenth of all we make to God as an offering, as a tithe. Just getting too much involved now in my personal affairs. But I know it's written in the law and the New Testament. But I really don't want him or her speaking about this. I want them to tell me how good I am. How the world is going to be a better place. We are the world. We are the people. Job said to his opponents, his supposed friends, surely wisdom is found in you and it's going to die with you guys. You're it. I mean, the way you're speaking and you're resisting my truth and the integrity that I'm speaking from God, it sounds like you have more wisdom than God. Exactly how it is today. Not only equated, there's no concept of what God prescribed and the order in God's house. Not because it has to be some kind of structure to protect the infrastructure and so on. Everything will crumble. You know, we need to have some order. Everything has order. No, this is spiritual order. This is something eternal. This is to save people. Not only to be a hospital, to bring people in who are wounded and dying, but to nurse them back to health, to become... a central location for training of soldiers, developing immunity to this plague called sin, that there's no gap, leak, or hole anywhere in that armor. The person will be guaranteed to stand strong through the proper training and example of who? The people God has put there. Has this concept ever been there for modern Christianity? No wonder Christians can go to even so-called Pentecostal church and say, well, my pastor went to the movies and he said, this PG-rated movie was okay. 
There's just a little kissing. I know those people weren't married in the movie itself, even in the script. They were married, but they were kissing, they were hugging. You know, they didn't show any nudity or anything, but uh, it was okay. The pastor took his 13-year-old daughter, and he even said his 10-year-old son loved the moral teaching that came out of that movie. You know, Spider-Man saved the day. He also has a private life, and there are some things that, you know, could have been better, could have been tweaked, but it was a great movie. Well, if the pastor can see that movie, that's PG rated, I'm not the pastor. Maybe I can not only follow his, his example, but bend the rules a little more and go see the R-rated movie. What's wrong with that? So what if there's some profanity? We live in a world that's fallen. I mean, literature and the movies reflect real life. And so this Satan, this Satan baits those who are wanting to be baited and twist God's standards and have a wolf in sheep's clothing leading them straight to destruction. But everybody's happy. Everybody's made communion. Everybody's found their prim and proper Sunday morning. Look at that whole family. How neat they look. Look at that eight-year-old. Hair is combed so nicely. And look at the angelic voices. It's wonderful. May the Lord help us to understand the depth of God's love, the extent to which He demonstrated on the cross, the price that He paid, and the holiness that He calls us to, and the divine order that He has instituted to protect our souls. But like in Israel, there will always be people who will have their own standard. They will have a dual standard. They will have a double standard. In front of the pastor and in the church, there will be one way. But inside, there will be rebellion. And you find them doing things, modifying things. No matter how many times that poor man will scream at the top of his lungs. Top of his lungs. Don't do these things. Don't associate with people who are not following God. It will touch you and affect you and destroy you. Oh, I know, I got dizzy spiritually when I was around these relatives and these friends. But I find myself back with them and I make modifications. You know what? I'm doing pretty good. A delusion sets in. May we be careful to heed the counsel of God that comes through. The people of God who are accountable to God to transmit the word of God exactly as he says. With no addition like the rabbis, no subtraction, no mutation or deviation or twist. These Hebrew Christians were told, point blank as it were, this is the law, this is the priesthood, you should know about this. Everything's been fulfilled and superseded for the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, high priest. The ultimate sacrifice, the precious blood that was sinless, unlike any other thing you've seen in your rituals. Now coming to this Christ, you don't have to worry about what time you have to do what sacrifice and what month and what day, what new moon, what new Sabbath. And how many animals we need? Do we have enough? Do we inspect it? Do we have... None of that. Oh, God, just come to Jesus. Kneel at the cross and say, my God, my life belongs to you. 
You owe me twice, God, because once you made me with your hands. You breathed life into me. That's why I survived in my mother's womb and came out and still alive today. Oh, my God. It's you and you alone. And, Lord, you died for me on the cross. That's why I have an eternal hope. Oh, God. God says, now you're responsible. With the free gift of eternal life I've given you, don't become a witch. Don't become a wizard. God, I don't have this pointed hat and this big broth that I'm stirring up in my kitchen somewhere, casting spells. But if the Lord spoken something and you defy that repeatedly, God says, that's like witchcraft to me. But be careful. Any Christian who is still committing adultery and has an eye for the ladies, eye for a man or anything that comes by and is teased by that, that person must know no matter how much they serve and how much they help people, what they do, they're headed for hell. No matter how sanctified and sanctimonious they sound in their prayer life, especially publicly. A person is covetous and greedy must know, according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 6 and elsewhere, they're on their way to hell. They have the ticket to hell. No matter how much of a Christian they appear to be. Who would preach such truth today? Only people who God can trust. And who would receive such truth? People who said, I'm tired of being a hypocrite. Let me tear the mask off. No more double standard. I don't want to live one way in front of the church people, in front of the pastors, and another way with my family elsewhere. I want to be the same. God help me to be the same. And let it be on the good side, not the bad side. Not to say, well, I'm no hypocrite. I'll curse outside, I'll curse in the church. I'll be mean with my family and other people, I'll be mean in the church. I'm not a hypocrite. Well, that won't excuse anyone. It'll only condemn them more. I have to say, Lord, help me, help me, Lord. Help me not to worship my family when they're not following you. Because essentially that's what it comes down to. It comes down to. When God has things for us and we pick and choose what we want and we make modifications, when life is flowing from his throne to say excuse me I'll come later Lord I have something else to do these people were told if you rebel against the commandment of God there remains no more sacrifice if there's repetition of it I'm going to read very quickly through this verse 4 for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins that is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other sin offerings for sin. Then I said, look, behold, Lord, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Where is it written in the scriptures? From Genesis 3 all the way down to Malachi about this person that's going to come, who's going to crush the enemy's head, serpent's head. And he'll be bruised too, but he's going to end up crushing Satan's head. Hallelujah. 
First Christ said, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. But he's the one who prescribed it. What does he mean? No, were you pleased with them? In other words, it was not the point. Though they were required, are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. In other words, this is what it was all pointing to. He canceled the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once, forever, for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good forever for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Look at the emphasis over and over again. It's a perfection for eternity. And it is a perfection that is perfected. As we obey God, we are being perfected. Through His blood, there's a consummation, there's a unity with God that will never be broken ever. There will be no potential. Because we will be like Him as He is when we see Him on that day. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For He says, notice how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved. All God's plan, the Trinity. Jesus is the way. He's the answer. And if he is and he's paid it all, I better give him my all. If there's sin in my life, I've become a witch or a wizard and I'll be destroyed with all of them. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Some people say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, past, present, and future. It's true, but only in this sense. Please make note of this. Very, very critical. Another lie from the pit of hell that is circulated, which is a misinterpretation of Scripture. If in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 we're reading here that he has once forever perfected those who come to him through his blood, then where's the lie to be found? Not in the scriptures, but in the scripture twisters who say, since God already knows everything about me, even if I don't get to confess my sins, and if I die in a state where I'm not able to confess my sins and repent for them, because I made a covenant with God and received His covenant at some point, that all my past, present, future sins are all take care of on the cross. Therefore, I'll be fine if I die in the state of sin without confessing and repenting from it. And so life from the pit of hell and comes to mind now, to my mind, one of the premier Super apostles 
in the world that comes from the East. Many, many people have their devotionals and very attractive to this man. He preaches such a thing as many of these super apostles quote-unquote do. You don't need to worry about anything. Jesus did it all. He did it so you... He did what you couldn't do. What did he do that I couldn't do? Well, he kept the law perfectly. He didn't steal and he knows you're a thief. You can't help but stealing. You have kleptomania. Uh, He knew that you couldn't stop committing adultery so that's why he kept that law and uh, he fulfilled it on the cross. In the book of Proverbs, during the time of the law, it says the adulterer, if he's caught, vengeance will be taken on him. And he that commits adultery is not wise. He that doeth it destroys his own soul. And if the adulterer is caught, he's to be destroyed by the community under the Jewish law, under God's law. Is that why Jesus went to the cross? Because he knew that I couldn't stop committing adultery, I couldn't stop stealing, I couldn't stop blaspheming. He knew you couldn't keep the Sabbath holy. And so he gave you a commandment he knew you couldn't keep, and uh, that's why he went to the cross. Which means that God uh, really can't be trusted to be fair. Isn't that Satan's insinuation? from the very beginning in the garden. God knows that the day that you partake of that fruit, that your eyes are going to be open. Why? You're going to be just like God, independent agent. You don't have to worry about anything. In fact, here are the perks and the bonus. You move in with that guy. I know he's divorced or he's still married. But you moving with him, guess what? You have the company at your fingertips. You have all these perks. You get his car. You get his bonus. You get to be in high society. Never mind that this is wrong. Who said it's wrong? Look at all the benefits that are available. How could something so good be so wrong? How could something that feels so right be so wrong? And how much trouble and destruction people have sown? and reaped by shacking up with people they thought were the ticket to happiness you know to be fair the other party may have thought that about this person and together they produced offspring a brood of vipers to go and destroy society further Sin always brings forth death. A better system? He paid for my past sins, my present sins, and my future sins on one condition, that you repent of your sins. This not only applies to the person coming for the first time to the cross, saying, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but for the Christian, until the day that person breathes his or her last on this side of eternity. Sin 
is volitionally committed, it must be volitionally repented of. That condition never changes. Sin, essentially, is Satan's commodity. It belongs to him. Imagine if someone's getting married, they apologize to the spouse, the future spouse, vice versa. You know, I had all these boyfriends and girlfriends, and here's a ring that my girlfriend gave 10 years ago. And the, and the, the perspective writes, here's a, a, a picture album of all the good times I had with my, my boyfriend. You know, we went to Great Adventure, we went to the Bahamas, and here we are on the beach. And, I, you know, I'm getting married to you, but I must have this album on my nightstand after I get married to you. Every day I'll look through it. And the husband says, this ring that my girlfriend gave me, it'll be right next to our wedding ring. You understand, sweetheart. And every day I would just reminisce, reminisce about the good times I had with her. That's equivalent to a person saying, at least as far as the analogy could afford, it's not exactly equivalent. Virtually unthinkable when it comes to the spiritual domain, that a person should bring Satan's ring Satan's photo album, the life they lived with Satan. Try to bring that into heaven, smuggle it in there. Is that possible? That's what it means when somebody says, oh, if I commit sin and I die before I get to confess and repent from it, I know I can still go to God in a defiled state filled with sewer water, go into a place that's pure and holy. devil say this sounds like fire and brimstone preaching the standard is so high who could ever make it perhaps we should ask the apostle Paul Paul the standard you're bringing here is so high John the Baptist John James John the apostle that is Jude Jesus your standard is just too high There are people who will argue with God and they'll write books and they'll have conversations and conferences. They go to restaurants and talk over the Bible. And like the rabbis with the Talmud, interpret everything the way they'd like. Do away with God's word. And, and you know what? Finish the meal and say a prayer and then leave a generous tip and continue on their way of destruction while disobeying God's very word. Excusing the congregants. I know you have multiple marriages and you're living in fornication and you're doing this and that. And uh, you know what? You're okay. You're okay in my book. This church welcomes everybody. We ought to welcome everybody because God is equal opportunity to everybody. But we cannot make the standard conform to everybody. Because God's truth is God's truth. 
And so every body that comes in, in any body, in any way, any persuasion, are brought in so that they can see the one body that was given on the cross for their sins. Jesus' body. To understand his sacrifice, that is. Not to stare at some crucifix and have some feelings, but to understand with their spiritual eyes, Jesus paid it all. He caused me to live holy. That's what his blood did for me. He washed me clean when I believed. Now, I don't come as just anybody. I come as a somebody, and that somebody is a disciple of Jesus for life and for eternity, to do what he says. This sacrifice could not take away the sins, but Jesus' blood did. Verse 18, and when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. We understand that. Now, the application, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. All over the world, in Christian rehab centers, in churches, and community events, all shout hallelujah. But they don't want to shout hallelujah for the rest of it which is by his death Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. So far, so good. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, good, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. That's good. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's good. I like it. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Oh, I know God who began a good work in me shall see it to completion until the day of Christ. Amen. Paul, this is wonderful. Keep preaching. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Yes, it's good. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Okay, I get it. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we receive knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. I'm confused. Everything was good so far, a person may say. This is confusing. And Can we skip over that real quick? That's what the devil will do. When you know that something sounds confusing, we need to know the devil is up to his tricks. Stop right there. Underline verse 26 and say, My God, burn this into my conscience that I don't fall into this trap of singing your praises and everything you've done for me. Being deluded that I can sin willfully and think I can get away with it. I can come back and ask forgiveness every single time. There's a cutoff point for the saved person, truly saved from sin, washed in the blood of Jesus, that if we continue to deliberately sin against God, there will be no more sacrifice left for us. Like Esau, there will be a cry made, but God will not hear. That's true. Oh, I'll never get to that stage. I am, as long as I'm convicted of sin, I'm okay. Have you heard that lie from the pit of hell? How many preachers I've heard myself in person, in churches, in different faith rehab centers that we ministered in across the country, on TV, on the radio, 
Well, you know you're okay because if you have fallen away, you won't have that conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that gives you conviction. But Judas had remorse. He was definitely convicted. That's why he went and hung himself. The demons took over. It was too late. He was convicted and he tried to give the money back. Too late. No, conviction is no evidence of Christianity. It's a precursor to the Christian life. Truly lived. Because after conviction must come repentance. Never let anyone lie to you again from the pit of hell. Getting it from their boss, the devil. At least at that moment, they're listening to the devil. They may be ignorant, repeating what somebody else said, but still, the source is hell. Know that for sure. One big heresy is, Jesus Christ died for my sins, past, present, and future. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether I confess or repent. He did it all. That's a lie. That person will go to hell if they don't repent from their sins. Just read the book of Peter. Read James right at the end of it. The person who comes and speaks the truth as I am right now, and anyone who speaks the truth, says to that person, stop being stubborn and idolatrous. Come back to God. Be holy. It says the person who caused that person, caused that other person to turn from their error, their misguided path. This person who told them the truth has saved that person from a multitude of sins and saved their soul from death, eternal death. Second big heresy. is that I don't need to confess. That is, it's okay if I sin. And don't repent. It's the first one. This affinity for the world. To bring in that as my experience. To say that I have my own standard interpretation. So what if I forsake the assembling of myself together with the saints? What if I pick and choose when I'd like to do it? I can have the best of both worlds. God have mercy when we choose to try to modify God's word, this independent mode of Christianity is the devil's brand of Christianity. Can someone please tell me the second heresy that I mentioned just a moment ago? If you happen to be hearing Can you can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Josh. Yes. So uh, from second here, my understanding was that my present 
past and all future sins, everything is washed away with the, with the blood of Jesus. And whatever I do now doesn't, doesn't make a difference. So it doesn't make a difference. Praise God. I believe that was the, the first one I mentioned. Does anyone know the second one? Pastor, is it that conviction is not evidence but a precursor? Praise God. Yes, the first one is one that goes very emphatically from many pulpits. Jesus Christ paid for my sins, past, present, future. I don't have to confess. I don't have to repent. If I don't get a chance, then I'm covered. It's a great insurance policy. I'm covered. No deductible involved. No, there are terms and conditions. He paid it all. But if I keep incurring damage, I'm scorning what he paid. And there's no more payment. I have to repent for my sins. So the person who's not saved must repent in order to get saved. There's no salvation without repentance. The person who's walking with Christ must continue to repent of anything that shouldn't be there so that they can walk perfectly with Him. That's what you call maturity. As we read in Hebrews 6 when we read before, we don't keep continually going for the same thing, saying, God forgive me. Is it a game with God? Can God be mocked? A man sows and he reaps. That's in the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament. But we can conveniently ignore these things. And we have seen multitudes of people of all ages in Teen Challenge, in Walter Hoving Home, in homeless missions, where they have tremendous amount of funding in some of these places. All kinds of courses in Bible and theology and literature. And you can even get a seminary degree coming off the streets as a homeless person or addict or a gang banger. And with it is injected this pernicious doctrine. And they begin to become a professional at propagating that pernicious doctrine. And how many people have overdosed and died and committed suicide? And shacked up with other people, received diseases in exchange for their cohabitation. Because somebody said, you can always repent, and if you don't, don't worry. He covers it all. And uh, the second follow-up heresy from the pit of hell, well, when you're living in an immoral relationship, and one day, one fine day in September, after nine months of living together with that person, you're a graduate of a Christian-based program. You're a long-standing member in that uh, spiritual church and you do all kinds of service in the house of God and you help people in the community but you're shacked up with uh, Miss Universe or Mr. Universe and they really have a good head uh, they, he or she has a good head on his or her shoulders 
you know, they have a great job. They love you. They make time for you. You have candlelight dinners. You get to go to theme parks. And uh, they don't mind your Christianity either. In fact, they go to church with you. You're committing fornication, living as husband and wife, though you're not. But that's all negligible because one day you may get you may get married. So you love each other, don't you? One fine day in September, you know, the thought hits you. He's not as princely as I thought. She's not all that much of a princess. Maybe I should go back to Christ. Let me call up the pastor. Uh, pastor, I, I'm not happy. What's wrong? Well, I find someone that I thought Christ brought me to and turns out that they're not so much of a saint. I know they're not born again, but I still thought they were a saint. You understand, Pastor. And they really met all my needs until today. They didn't make breakfast for me. And I, I started thinking maybe they're not the one for me. It's been about nine months of fornication, Pastor. But Pastor, does God love me still? Oh, yes, he loves you. And so do I. Come back to the church. Thank you. I'll be there Sunday morning. And maybe I can start teaching Sunday school again. Well, you've been away for a while and we need to bring you up to date. We change the curriculum and uh, I'll have elder so-and-so and deaconess so-and-so and the Sunday school superintendent bring you up to speed. You're a great teacher. The kids loved you. And we can't wait to see it back. We have open arms for you. God bless you. We see you Sunday morning. We'll be praying for you. Click. Oh, I'm so glad God loves me. And I'm in a loving church. Let me call up my other friends and tell them what happened. Ah, they're so loving too. You know what? Nobody judged me. That's the beauty of these people. I love this community. Nobody judged me. Nobody said, what were you thinking when you sinned against God? Yes, God loves you, and so do we. But you can't be two-timing God. Don't you see? He calls you to be faithful. You've courted the devil. And now because they didn't make breakfast this morning or they had an attitude, you started thinking, started thinking you need to come back to Christ. Can't you see how cheap you've become? You thought God was a fool? That Satan didn't keep his part of the agreement, so you wanted to bail out on Satan? After you committed to Satan by walking out on God? Let me tell you what conviction from the Holy Spirit is. Let me tell you what it should lead to. Let me tell you what God's terms are, and what this church's terms are, what my terms are as a pastor and shepherd. God loves you, but you've got to repent, sweetheart. Do you understand? You know, if this pastor is an older gentleman, say 78 years old, and this is a young lady, 20 years old, and this pastor baptized and, and uh, dedicated that child, you may well say, I love you, I know your family, I've knew, known you from a baby, and you've gone astray, and this is the way back, dear. The road of repentance. God will heal you. He'll forgive you. But don't take it for granted because you may not get another chance. I'm going to tell you the whole truth. 
It's like a kid that comes to the mother and says, Mom, I went swimming while there was lightning outside. And look, Ma, I didn't get struck. You're always telling me I may get struck with lightning. What does a good parent say? Oh, I know. I was just trying to scare you. And you're such a great sport. And you're so, uh, you got such a good luck on you. 69 times you went out there when it was lightning and you never got struck. I guess I don't need to instruct you anymore. And I think you're immune to this stuff. What a fool of a parent that would be. The 70th time may be the last time for Junior. How much can we, or how can we ever think of God of being less responsible and loving than that to warn us you're playing with fire you will get burned and when you get burned one time it'll be too late there'll be no recovery that's the truth of scripture let me finish with this and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do we're in Hebrews 10 25 but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near dear friends look at the tone of voice it's not you rebels and yet it's very firm. As Kirby and I were very gentle. Though the preaching may sound a, a bit forceful, it has to be. When we deal with people, we're very gentle, unless they're playing the hypocrite. And they're bringing disease to the church. Just like the Lord handles it, He teaches us how to handle things. But a person comes and says, I've sinned, I've been fornicating, I've been disregarding God's covenant. We don't lash out at them. We say, okay. Okay, well, this is what the scripture says. And God loves you still. We love you. That's why we're talking right now. But you've got to change your ways. We don't want to see you destroyed because that's the path that you're on. Not temporary destruction, total destruction. Don't go there again. Don't go there again. We pray for them. But we tell them the truth. We intercede for them. We cry for them. Because we don't want to see that path that the devil has deceived them with these lies. Jesus Christ has forgiven my past, present, future sins. And I don't have to worry about anything. And because I feel convicted, I think I'm okay. Somebody told me that that's the Holy Spirit. So I still got the Holy Spirit. Did Judas have the Holy Spirit? He was heavily convicted. To the point where he wanted to give back those pieces of silver. That he sold the master for, the Lord for. That conviction led to suicide and eternal damnation. Conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit would lead a person to say, Lord, I played the fool. I played with fire and by your grace I'm alive. Never again go that way again, Lord. I promise. Oh, take me back. The prodigal son left his pigsty. Not only did he cry, a lot of people cried today, no repentance, but he repented. He walked back to the Father. And he knew if he's going to be in the Father's palace, so to speak, he can't be with the pigs in the pigsty. How many believers today think they can find some kind of compromise, some middle ground? I can have some of the pig stuff on me. I can have some of the holiness too. Look at me. I've been doing this for 52 years. God eventually, when he appears, all of a sudden the pigsty part of me will go. 
No. That's not how it works according to the word of God. We have to depart from that in order to go to heaven. And let us not neglect our meeting together. What's the purpose of meeting together? A lot of clubs, a lot of meetings, a lot of board meetings, a lot of church meetings, a lot of youth fests and spring fests and all kinds of infestations of false doctrine and people are happy. But when the Holy Spirit is present in any meeting, God is shining his laser beam on sin and destroying it on the spot. He's on a seek and destroy mission for the sake of your soul and my soul to give us the truth and nothing but the truth to set us free from the plague of disobedience by giving us the real conviction the real fear of God that will keep us safe and happy full of his love full of joy full of fruitfulness even though there may be a barren wasteland when we look over our shoulder and say Lord I've made such a mess of my life I'm not going to blame my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my father, my mother, my grandfather, my cat, my dog, the weather, the state, the government, my school. I'm not blaming anything or anyone. I'm not going to blame God. I'm going to put the blame where it belongs, on me. And I thank God, God can remove that blame because he loves me so much. I'm the guilty one. Now, because he died for me, when I confess my guilt and I repent for my sins, he removed that guilt. David was walking well. He made two big blunders, at least two that are recorded. One is he was moved by the devil to take a census of his people. His chief captain Joab said, please don't do this. Because he knew David's trying to see how good he is, how much people he has. He was trying to gauge his power, forgetting that it was God who brought Goliath down and every one of his enemies. And his captain, who was not as spiritual as David, all of a sudden he was wise at that moment. And he says, please don't do this. David insisted. And it says the thing that David did displeased God because Satan moved him to do it. See how a believer can be influenced by the devil? Even Peter can become a spokesperson for the devil to the point where Jesus says, shut up. Get behind me, Satan. You're not talking God's talk. You're talking devil talk. Equals man talk. Woman talk. Do you know when God's speaking, when the devil's speaking? Do you know when God's using you, when the devil's using you? We need to be wise in the scripture so we can be on high alert and say, I will never speak for the devil again. I never want to do anything to do what? Displease God. The thing that David did displeased God. God had great indignation. Why is my child doing this? Why is he thinking even for a moment that his power has something to do with his victory? Oh my God. We have to fall flat at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, it's your grace and grace alone that's keeping me alive, that saved me, will continue to keep me. Thank you, Lord. I will depend on you, and I'll show you I depend on you. How? Not by mere words of sentiment, but by strict observance of the word of Christ. Not the one who hears the word is justified, but the one who keeps the word. Who's my mother? My brother, my sister, Jesus said. 
The one who hears my word and does it, keeps it. Who's the wise person whose house will stand when the storms come? The one who hears my word, my teaching, and does it. Conviction from the Holy Spirit will lead me to repentance. Godly sorrow is not just a whole bunch of tears. Crocodile tears in some cases. Some cases, real tears of remorse, but no conviction from the Holy Spirit to repent. I wish to God people just preach as it is in the Bible. Our hearts go out. How many people we have heard committed suicide? Because somebody told them a lie. You're going to go to heaven. Don't worry about it. He paid for your future sins too. Oh my God. How much blood will be on the people's hands who preach that? You commit adultery and you got hit by a car. You walked out the road shacking up with someone, went to the grocery store and you got hit by a car and got killed. Don't worry, you'd be in heaven. Yeah, you died in the state of fornication, but Jesus paid it all. You did have the conviction when he burnt your egg Sunday morning. Maybe it's not right that you live with this person. The Holy Spirit was with you. Oh, they, they're free from their demonic struggle. No, they ended up in the devil's lap. How do you expect them to go to God and to be on his lap, on his throne? Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice. No longer any sacrifice. Underline this word. It will save you and the people who you will be privileged to give the word to. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only, underline this too, the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Why underline these things? Because we're living in the last days. There are many imposters out there masquerading as shepherds and pastors and all these things. Many so-called apostles. They're feeding lies that are poison, killing people's souls. We're in such a time before the Lord returns. We need to know the scriptures and give it as it is to the people. Why? To shock them out of their stupor, out of their death sleep. Before it's too late. Before they permanently die. The lake of fire. For anyone, notice it says, for there, there is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire, not that will refine, but that will consume his enemies. It's written to believers. Hebrews is not written to some Jewish people who heard the gospel, as many commentaries put it. Lie from the pit of hell. Now they're just on the fence there, you know, deciding whether to follow Jesus or not. No, they're believers who are thinking about going back to the law and the rituals. They're full-fledged Christians. To these Christians is written, if you continue to sin, even though you have been walking good and you've been suffering persecution for the faith, some of you are thinking about going back to the law and leaving Christ. If you go back to Egypt, go back to sin, go back to Mount Sinai, away from Mount Zion, from the gospel back to your own ways, no more sacrifices there. Don't come back to Christ because you already paid it all. And if you refuse that by sinning deliberately, 
you can't go back to the cross. What does that mean? You mean if somebody backslides, they can't go back? No. It means that if they backslide enough times, and God only knows that point, and that's the danger. That is the danger. Unless he reveals it by the Holy Spirit to someone who's walking with God. That that person has burnt or burned their bridge back to God. This time they've completely burned their bridge. No matter who cries for them, they're not coming back. Oh my God. Way before someone gets to that point, the warnings of Scripture are given. Five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. Would to God somebody would preach this across this nation, across this world in these last days? And there are people. Praise God. Inasmuch as God told Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They have not kissed Baal. And, and in essence, they are holding fast the integrity to the truth. There are people. Compared to billions of people, not many. But we need more people preaching the truth. Maybe you can be one of them. Would to God that you would be one of them. To know how to speak in love, but speak the truth in love for God's sake. For Christ's sake. For the person's sake. For your own sake. Say, Lord, I've got to know your whole truth. I've been fed lies. That's why my life has been miserable. That's why I've been playing the harlot. Oh God, help me, help me, help me to be true to you. Help me, Lord, to save my friends and people who are, Lord, fellow Christians who the devil is just waiting to take them to hell. They don't even know it. They think they're covered while they're walking in defiance to you. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Yes, there's mercy with the Lord. But you know he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. God didn't get any more merciful when he came to the world. He doesn't change. He's as loving and merciful as ever. That's why, although the law came by Moses and grace and truth by Jesus Christ, as is written in the Gospel of John, the same Jesus Christ is the one who has recorded this here for believers. Dear friends, he told Judas when he kissed him on that day of betrayal, That moment that sealed Judas' fate, perhaps even more so, if we can say, than the moment that Satan entered him in the Last Supper when he decided to get up and go and leave the meeting. Leave the meeting where Jesus is. Jesus said, friend, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Then they came and roughed up Jesus. They grabbed him. They shoved him around, humiliated him, hurt him. Judas knew all of that. The demon of greed overpowered him. So what? I need to get this drug, I'll kill anyone to get it. I need to get that man, that woman, I'll kill that spouse in a heartbeat to get that person. 
Oh, the monstrosity of the human heart without God. But Jesus said, friend, his name Jesus says here, dear friends, if we deliberately or if you deliberately continue sinning, the author of the Epistle of Hebrews writing, if we, including himself, but the Lord will say, dear friends, if you deliberately continue sinning, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, what I did on the cross will be of no effect for you. Absolutely effective, but not for one who's apostatized. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. How does one get to apostasy, which means the point of no return, absolutely no return, by practicing backsliding? So if somebody goes on that slide in that theme park of the devil, keep on practicing on that slide, one day they find out, you know what? They expected their feet to hit the ground when they came to the bottom of that slide. It was wonderful. It was fun. You had the devil's music playing, amusement lights, everything. But one day they fell into a hole that was bottomless. Nobody knows what happened. But that person kept sliding on that slide. They loved it. And the slide loved them. And we loved watching them. But uh, they're no more to be seen. That's what apostasy is. Continue to slide on the devil's slide, backslide. One day, there'll be no more backsliding. There'll be a permanent apostasy. Now, if under the law of Moses, there's no mercy, they were put to death. They're stoned. Can you imagine that? Horrible. But it's no less horrible, even it's worse, actually, according to the scriptures right here. Just think, verse 29, how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled the Son of God on the Son of God. And have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained or scorned the Holy Spirit, who brings God's mercy to us. This conveys the fear of God to us, and to the people we give the gospel to, who know Christ. We don't go and tell to someone who doesn't know Christ, because they don't even know him. We tell them how much God loves them. He died on the cross and He wants to give you a new life. Not just a happy life, but a holy life. He will work in you. Don't worry about it. Just follow Jesus. Continue to read the Bible or begin to read it. Pray. Meet with people who love God, who are living holy. And God will empower you and strengthen you to do what? Overcome sin. That deadly thing called sin. That's the real Christian life. Then to be used by God. To bring many people to the loving, saving knowledge of Jesus. But for the person who knows Jesus and playing with sin, this is what God says. And this is what we have to say. Be careful because you may get to a point of no return. But I thought you thought that this is what God says. But this preacher said that's what he said, inspired by the devil. God is not a cheap insurance policy. There are terms and conditions not hard. Just follow him. Do what he says. Keep his commandments. Verse 30, for we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. Look at the whole context. It's so powerful. It's so heavy what God is saying here. I truly cannot remember the last time I've heard this preached anywhere in my lifetime. Not to say that I'm, I'm the first one preaching it, or the only one. No, not at all. But I just find it 
not surprising these days, but as I read certain things, how come I never heard it growing up? Or even when I've visited other churches, and even in churches where I've been a long time, as I was searching for the truth and the holy life that God promises. Notice the context here. He says so many things to drive it in. For we know the one who said who? God, of course. I will take revenge. I will pay them back. What are you saying, God? I'm a believer. What are you saying over here? He also said the Lord will judge his own people. Lord, what are you saying? It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How scary this is. For anyone who has any sense or reading comprehension, the God is making a very emphatic point. Don't play with me. You're either with me or you're not. If you're going to be with me, don't serve the devil. Because I will disown you and you'll be burned up. That's what he's saying right here, just like John 15. Imagine if we had this preached along with all the other stuff. About the gifts of the Spirit, about the fruit of the Spirit, and about um, you know helping the poor, uh, the Beatitudes, we would have the whole truth. We'll be walking in an overcoming way. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't fear them that kill the body only, but fear him rather who after killing the body can cast both body and soul into hell. He is the judge. But the judge can be our Heavenly Father, and if he is, we don't want him to become that judge again for us that will have people come for the white throne judgment where everyone who's judged there will go to the lake of fire. We don't want that. So be loving children and obey. That's the whole meaning here. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. When I first trusted you, gave my life to you, when I trusted you. A line from the song of that early time, when a person really came to know God and overwhelmed by His grace and said, Lord, I love you forever. Cross my heart. I follow you, Jesus. There's no love like yours. Oh, you gave me meaning to life. You are my life. Everything's changed. The Bible says, remember those days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering? Some people actually among this crowd, the Hebrew Christians, and maybe some who are listening this morning or will listen to the message, can remember when they were faithful to God. It was joyful. They stayed away from sin. They knew certain things are bad. They're toxic for my soul. But something's gone wrong. They started to flirt with the sin and they started to make the phone calls they should have never made and started listening to people who are supposedly Christian and pastors, wolves in sheep's clothing, telling them, it's okay, we love you. You don't need to repent. In essence, that they were, that's what they were saying. Even if they said you should repent, they acted like it's okay. They never said you can go to hell. Even if you're a believer, if you continue to follow Satan, being unfaithful to God, be careful, come back before it's too late. They didn't say those things. He said, take your time, God understands. I feel sorry for you. How did he treat you that way? I'm sorry for your finances. I'm sorry I had to go to the hospital. 
But we're here for you. We're rooting for you now. Keep saying these promise verses and keep singing this song. Let me put some hill song for you or some worship song. No, they just were drugging me up with religion. They didn't tell me that I turned my back on the faithful one. I need to repent quickly and get back to him before there's a permanent divorce. That's the plain teaching of scripture. But remember when you used to walk with God? Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule, verse 33, and were beaten. I wonder if any one of us were beaten for the faith. I don't think so. I don't know everyone's situation, but these people were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. For what? For doing drugs? For breaking the law? No. For Christ. You found out who's in jail because they stood up for Christ. I'm going to support them. Not because of some social justice thing that has nothing to do with Christ. Taken on some kind of maze by the devil. So many Christians, they're caught up in a lot of different movements and things. Click of a mouse. Instead of stopping and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with my time, my resources, my energy? They don't want to do God's will. They want God, but they want to do their will. But these people, they suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you. Can you imagine that? This is why I mentioned in Hebrews 6 also, as well as here. I mention again. These people were not people who were just destroying everything, sinning. They stood for Christ. They suffered. They had their apartments taken. Their vehicles taken, confiscated. They had their Bibles taken. Their clothing taken, all kinds of stuff. They were beaten. What? You mean these are the people to whom the warning comes? Then where am I? If people that were so faithful to God, publicly put to shame, and joyfully took it, for Jesus' sake, they lost basically everything. Just their life was still in them. They're warned. Yes, the devil can deceive even the elect if it's possible. And the phrase, if possible, doesn't make it hypothetical. Just like Hebrews 6. No, you can fall away. The potential is a reality. But the possibility is contingent upon a person's Affinity with sin and rebellion. That is the possibility of falling. The degree increases. The degree of disobedience. These people who are so on fire for God. What a warning for each of us. No matter how good we feel. The Bible says let every person take heed. 
thinking he's standing lest he fall. Not to doubt that I'm standing. No, but to be careful so I don't fall. Stay standing. Remain standing. How do you do that? Take caution. Be careful. Listen carefully when God warns. Then you'll never fall. Hallelujah. You suffer along with those who are thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you know, we're making payments. A lot of us have vehicles and houses or apartments. We have bills to pay. Imagine if somebody says, I'm here to solve your problem. What are you talking about? Hey, you will have no more bills to pay. Really? How? I'm going to confiscate everything you have and you're going to be thrown to jail. No more bills to pay. That sounds like a strange thing to say. Doesn't even make sense, perhaps. The devil plays for keeps. And he doesn't play nice. When he baits somebody with sin, gives them feelings of lovey-dovey stuff and romance and potential happy life. You know, I know there's a Cinderella life somewhere. I just got to find me the prince and vice versa. He's got the person hooked. But the person says, shut up, devil, in Jesus' name. I'm not going to fall for your trap. I don't need anyone. I need Jesus right now. I need to be filled with the Lord Jesus. And if it's in God's will, if I qualify for it, that is. Some people are not eligible to remarry if they've been married before. The Bible lays conditions. Some people, they rush into things that are not approved by God. The conditions are laid out in the Gospels and in the Epistles. But if I'm eligible later, God will show me. Right now, my focus is I'm married to Christ. And I'm going to be forever married to Christ. I need to be faithful to Him. You suffer along with those who are thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that would last forever. So, do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that He's promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. It's very clear. In the last verse. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. Is this a guarantee? It's an exhortation. And a guarantee to those who remain like these people in the previous verses beginning in verse 32 up to 34. The people who stood for Christ, turning their backs on sins and their own desires, stand for Christ and to serve Him. Those are the people to whom verse 39 applies. The people who stay like that. Now, if we are like that and we are standing up for the truth and we have turned our backs on sin, refused the world, then we need to continue. But if we are not like that and we've been sinning against God, we need to say, Lord, I want to be that way so this will apply to me too. We can pray that from the heart and God will do it. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones 
whose souls will be saved. Notice, salvation is both past tense, present tense, and future tense. We were saved on the day we committed to the Lord Jesus, sincerely repenting from our sins. We are being saved as we continue to turn our backs on sins and walk with the Lord in holiness. We will be saved ultimately. When Jesus comes back for a bride that is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Faithful to him. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you, Father, for your truth. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for keeping us. Lord, I pray that we continue to encourage each other, warn each other as you see the day approaching to do the right thing, O oh Lord. O oh God, thank you for people in our lives that warn us, Lord, to do the right things before God so we can be prepared on that day, not swept away like the people were in those day, the flood, or burned up with fire, Lord, that's coming in the future, all of your enemies. As you said, and it will certainly happen, but we can be among those, Lord, who are sitting at the great feast of the Lord, glorifying you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Continue, Lord, to help us. Grow in your grace, Lord, to continue to follow closely after you, Lord, and to take great joy and pleasure, Lord, in doing your will, Lord, and not defecting from the faith, not turning on you, but learning how to be more and more pleasing to you, Lord, and seeing much fruit in our lives, that we can also bring many other people to heaven, Lord, with the truth, nothing with the truth, with your love, speaking your truth in love. Thank and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.